0: Well, Mr. President, people do have a right to be bigots, you know. In a free country, people do have rights to say things that other people find offensive or insulting or bigoted. Hello, and welcome to The Conversation Podcast. I'm Tamsin Peach, and today we're talking free speech. When Attorney General George Brandis announced he wanted to change the Racial Discrimination Act, he triggered a passionate national debate about the importance of free speech. Free speech is considered a fundamental human right and a foundation of democracy. But there are times when it seems necessary to limit our freedom of expression to protect citizens from speech that is hateful or offensive. Can we protect free speech without infringing on our other human rights? I caught up with Sarah Soraya. A professor of philosophy at the University of Wollongong, to find out whether free speech really is essential in a democracy.
1: Uh, yes, I think it's <laughs> absolutely essential. I think it's crucial. Partly because free speech is what enables democracy to function in the way it's supposed to function. And it does this in a number of ways. And so in a democratic society we need all sorts of information in order to make informed decisions about all sorts of things. So, for example, in order to make decisions about who to vote for in an election, we need all sorts of information about political
0: candidates,
1: Mm -hmm. about policies of various political parties. And we also need to be able to deliberate with each other about these policies.
0: So there are two important dimensions to free speech within a democracy. To make informed choices, citizens need access to a free flow of information. And just as importantly, they also need space for discussion and debate, so they can form and express opinions.
1: The first function, I think, is to ensure the legitimacy of the lawmaking process. And so if government just said, we're going to enact a law about X, and didn't give people who were going to be affected by that law any opportunity to deliberate about the ways in which they might be affected, the advantages or disadvantages of that law, then we would probably say that that law lacks legitimacy um, because we don't really agree to it. We haven't been a party to the Mm -hmm. process of of enacting it, as it were. And so that's one of the reasons why deliberation is really important. And so on the one hand, in that context, you would need information about what the, the proposed law actually is and then you would need to deliberate with each other in in various public forums, in the media, in parliament and so on to ensure that that law is legitimate. So that's one reason why free speech is really crucial to democracy. I guess the other reason why it's really important is that it enables us to hold our public officials to account, as it were. Um, And so by deliberating you know, in the media, by deliberating in classrooms. We are able to raise questions and to subject various policies to critical scrutiny. And that enables us to hold our elected representatives to account.
0: In a perfect democracy, everyone would get the opportunity to contribute to public debate and deliberation. We all should have the right to argue. But Sarah warns that this doesn't necessarily make our arguments right, or that other people should listen to what we have to say.
1: So, who can deliberate? Well, ideally everybody should be deliberating, Mm. but that doesn't mean that everybody's views or everyone's opinions, as it were, are necessarily equal. Um, And it doesn't mean that if you participate in public debate, that you're necessarily right. So the right, I mean, it's not a formal right, but the uh, right to
0: argue is quite different than the right to win the argument.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I guess when speakers are entering into public debate, yeah, sure, you can say whatever your opinion is, and we all have a right to our opinion, and we all have a right to express that opinion, but I think there's more to recognising free speech than just that.
0: In Australia today, the voices that win over public opinion tend to be the loudest and the most dominant. And there are plenty of voices that simply aren't heard because of the difficulties they face in accessing public spaces or appropriate forums.
1: In an ideal world, I think people would have the capacity to contribute to public debate um, in the sense that they're all able to speak in particular ways, they're all able to present arguments for their views and you know they're all able to understand each other. And So I think in an ideal scenario, mm. capacity is really important and I think You know, there are all sorts of arguments about why citizens should be kind of enculturated in these practices from a very young age. So capacity is one dimension, and then there's opportunity, which is the other dimension. And so, again, ideally, speakers should all have equal opportunities to participate in public debate. But as you point out, I mean, we're very far from that ideal, and there are all sorts of barriers to access public space or deliberative forums, but I also think people don't really understand what it means to enter into public debate and the sorts of responsibilities that you might have as a speaker and and so on.
0: One group of people who often enter into public debates are experts. Australians have in some ways a great disdain for expertise and ivory tower knowledge. Yet when it comes to public debate, some opinions do seem to be worth more than others. Sarah says the way we define an expert plays into our ideas
1: of free speech and democracy. It all comes down to critical scrutiny of ideas. So I think lay people can criticize expert knowledge in the ways that I've described it here and also subject that knowledge to critical scrutiny. But at the same time, I think it's important that We don't discredit expert knowledge in the way that sometimes occurs, partly because you do have consensus or there is a sense of consensus in a scientific community about, you know, certain scientific facts, as it were. Vaccines. Yeah, vaccine is another classic Mm. example. So, you know, climate science, vaccine. You know, today I was reading some stuff about AIDS denialism in South Africa. So I think there is consensus on those issues and I think experts do have something to contribute to public debates but also think experts then have a responsibility in how they deliberate in public forums.
0: Section 18C makes it unlawful for someone to commit an act that's reasonably likely to offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate someone on the grounds of race. While the words offend and insult make 18C somewhat problematic, in reality, an act will only be deemed unlawful if it causes serious and profound harm. Because Australia's spaces for public debate are so very fragile, Sarah says we need regulations like 18C to encourage the quieter voices
1: to speak up. Given that we're very far away from that particular ideal, I do think some constraints on what people can say is important. And I think people should enter into public deliberations on the assumption that their views are going to be subjected to critical scrutiny. Mm.
0: Attorney General George Brandis is a subscriber to John Stuart Mill's theory of the marketplace of ideas, where it is robust debate between citizens that regulates public discussion rather than the government. According to this theory, good ideas will rise to the top, while the bad ideas will fall away. But Sarah says, thinking in this way about debate fails to take into account all the circumstances of deliberation.
1: I think in order for the marketplace of ideas to function in the ways that it's supposed to function, um, there are certain background conditions that have to be met. And so I just talked a little bit earlier about citizens having the capacity to participate in debate in the appropriate way. So what Mill had in mind when he was kind of thinking of this marketplace of ideas is that citizens all have certain critical reasoning skills, right? That they're able to deliberate with one another, that they're open to different ideas, that they'll disown or discard certain ideas if they don't you know, stand up to critical scrutiny. And so there kind of has to be an openness in deliberation with each other. And and an acceptance that you enter into the public sphere and you put an idea out there and you could be wrong. And if you are shown to be wrong, then you need to kind of correct that Mm -hmm. view. So I think there are these background assumptions about how people reason, how they're trained to reason, the kind of education that they might have and so on.
0: On the other side of the marketplace of ideas is the concept of constraint, the notion that we might place restrictions on free speech. But the problem with regulating debate is that we need to figure out what kinds of conversations are dangerous enough to be silenced.
1: There's been quite a lot of debate about what harm actually is. And so Mill thought that harm was could be thought of in terms of you know, damage to persons or their property. Mm. But there's been a lot of literature in the last say 20 to 30 years trying to look at the different kinds of harm that some speech causes and so speech that you know that we characterize as hate speech or vilification or whatever else causes all sorts of harms that they're not not necessarily direct harms to persons but they can be all sorts of you know diffuse or indirect harms to people's you know psychological well-being their standing in a community and so on and their perception of themselves as as being equal the freedom to say whatever we want
0: seems to be an important value to most Australians. But debate on Section 18c is dealing with issues of hate speech and harm. I asked Sarah why we place so much value on the liberty to speak our minds.
1: So I guess we can all agree that freedom of speech is really important. We value it. and. People get really irate when they feel like their speech is going to be limited in in some way. So I guess navigating this, we then need to ask, well, why do we care so much about speech? What What does speech do? Why do we value it so much? And I guess my answer to this is, well, we value it because speech does certain things. It provides us with certain social goods, and those goods might be, you know, it enables democracy. Or it might be that speech enables individual flourishing, right? To be able to express your views, you know, is really important for people, either as a matter of, you know, their own personal conscience or for, for personal expressive reasons. Um, but speech is also really important because it enables us to discover the truth about certain things. Again, this kind of comes back to to Mill's marketplace of ideas metaphor, um, and essentially Mill thinks that the truth or discovering the truth is a human collective effort.
0: But, Sarah says, not all speech actually contributes to this quest to increase human knowledge.
1: The reason we care about free speech is that it enables so certain social goods. Now, not all speech is going to do this. Mm. Okay? Not all speech promotes truth. Not all speech enables democracy. And not all speech enables human flourishing. And so I don't think all speech is equivalent. And I think there's a tendency in the literature to, or in the way in which the debate is characterised by George Brandes, for example, and in the media, that, you know, that free speech means that all speech is equal. And I don't think that's the case at all, because some speech doesn't do the things that we value Mm. free speech for.
0: The Section 18c debate revolves around the question of whether restrictions on free speech run counter to democracy. But Sarah Sorile thinks regulations of what can be said can coexist peacefully with democratic ideals. Indeed, she thinks that free speech is essential to a flourishing democracy.
1: The first thing is that I don't think free speech rights or freedoms are incompatible with there being some restriction Mm. on speech. Second thing, I mean we talk a lot about Section 18C but there's also Section 18D which provides all sorts of defences.
0: Section 18D of the Racial Discrimination Act exists to protect freedom of expression, so that it is not unlawful if something is said or done for artistic purposes or during academic or scientific inquiry, or if accurately reported in matters of public interest, provided the act were said or done in good faith.
1: So, I do think there are these kinds of checks and balances. I mean, that's not to say that Section 18c is without its problems. I think the word offend is problematic in that context. But I do think there should be some restrictions on what people can say if what they say is designed to humiliate others or intimidate them or designed to make them feel like they're not equal in their community. Free speech rights are enacted in a community. And so there's a tendency to think of, well, you know, I have a right to free speech and that's a right that I have against everybody else in my society. But everybody in in our society also has a right to free speech or a freedom to free speech. And I think attached to all our rights are also duties or obligations. And so I think in the same way that we emphasise what our rights should be, I think there needs to be more of a discussion about what our obligations are as speakers and the sorts of effects that our speech might have on other people. Because we're not just committed to principles of free speech, we're also committed to principles of equality.